Welcome to the Marvel Events Timeline, the podcast that takes you on a journey through Timely, Atlas, and Marvel Comics, one event at a time. Here are your hosts, Travis Bowe and Brian Lockhart. Happy Veterans Day, everybody. We're back for a bonus episode. I'm Brian Lockhart. I'm Travis Bowe. Happy Veterans Day, Brian. Well, thanks so much. Well, happy Veterans Day to you, too. It's everybody's <laughs> day. day, yeah. day well, some people get the day off. Mm, yeah. I know the kids do. <laughs> I, I used to like to tease my dad that, uh, well, my dad used to tease me that he, he was the veteran and he didn't get the day off, and I did when I was in school. But <laughs> You showed him. <laughs> yes, right. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah, it, it's Veterans Day, and we figured we're here for a bonus episode, our first our first official bonus episode. That's right. Since it's Veterans Day, we should go ahead and talk about some veterans. And since we are a comic book podcast and we are discussing the timeline of, of Marvel Comics, uh, we figured we'd actually take a little step outside <laughs> the actual <laughs> timeline, and uh, we're, we're going to... We're gonna Really bring in uh, a discussion of not only somebody we've already talked about already in uh, Lloyd Jaquette, who's who, who came up in our, you know, our, our first episode about, you know, Marvel Comics, number mm-hmm. one. We're going to talk about our distinguished competition and, and the guy and the man who started that in uh, Major Malcolm Wheeler, or at least you are. Yeah. You're going to tell me a little bit of something, school me a little bit. That's right. <laughs> I got the easy stuff. I, <laughs> I, I got the guy who we've already discussed. <laughs> right. <laughs> This deal keeps getting worse all the time. Right. Hey, you know, I, I altered the deal. <laughs> so, um, yeah. So it, it's been my my long running theory, at least in my own mind, <laughs> that the modern comic book industry wouldn't exist if it wasn't for the American veteran. You know, it's funny when I say comic book veteran, because <laughs> I, 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 I don't know if I mentioned this, you know, online, but I one time did a panel at a local Comic Con. Uh, it happened to fall on the Marine Corps birthday, and we discussed, you know, comic book veterans. <laughs> and when I wrote up the the title, I was like, man, people are just going to think it's about people who've been in the comic book industry for a long time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but no, it was about, you know, just various people who, who have served the military but also served in the entertainment industry by, by creating comic books or producing them or publishing them or editing them. Right. And the list goes on and on. But I figure since, you know, we are knee deep in, you know, 1930s. <laughs> right. Yeah. You know, timely comics. Let's go back and talk about two guys and from that era that had a hand in creating the comic book industry as we know it. And we, you know, as we said, we've already kind of hinted at that a little bit in our earlier, you know, official episodes. So, Travis, I, you know, if you don't mind, uh, I'd love to hear about Major Malcolm Wheeler, the the gentleman who... You know, was a veteran of, I believe, World War One, and then also yep. was the uh, the man who basically started DC Comics or the Distinguished Competition. That's right. Yeah, and it, in a roundabout way. Yeah, we'll get there. Yeah, so I'm going to talk about Major Malcolm Wheeler Nicholson. Um, he was born in 1890 in Greenville, Tennessee, and according to Wikipedia, in 1894, when he was four, uh, his father and his sister died. The one thing I listened to said that his father had abandoned the family, but Wikipedia says that he died. So maybe he left the family and then died. Not sure. And then he also lost his sister that same year. So 
I mean, he was four, and then he had a, I think, a, a younger brother at that time. His uh, mother, Antoinette, ultimately took the boys to, I think, to New York and then to Portland, Oregon, where she wrote for a women's magazine. So I guess kind of writing was kind of in the in that side of the family already. I think her father started a newspaper in Tennessee, and I believe that newspaper is still still going today. So Malcolm's mother, Antoinette, marries an Englishman. I think it's Thomas J.B. Nicholson. She hyphenated her name, Wheeler Nicholson, and then Malcolm adopted that, I guess. Uh, so I got a lot of this the info for my kind of my report here. I got from uh, Malcolm's granddaughter, Nikki Wheeler Nicholson. She wrote a book called uh, DC Comics Before Superman, Major Malcolm Wheeler Nicholson's Pulp Comics. So if you look up, you know, Major Malcolm on YouTube, uh, especially YouTube, you'll find a bunch of videos of Nikki kind of talking about her grandfather. And the way she describes it, like her parents had had divorced when she was young. So she didn't really know her her father's side of the family all that much. And then in her 20s, you know, once she was an adult, she wanted to, I think, find out, wanted to get closer to her dad and that side of the family. So she didn't find out any of this stuff. She didn't know she was connected to this uh, legacy, you know, until her 20s. So she, you know, found out about it and started getting interested and started doing research. And that led to, to her writing this book. But yeah, you can find all kinds of her appearances on other people's podcasts and YouTube videos. And I'll link some of those in our show notes. But uh, one particular video that I watched that I got a lot of my info from, it's um, from a show called Mr. Media. And that's on YouTube and it's a podcast. And it was episode 1044. So it's a <laughs> lot of episodes of, of Mr. Media, but... Yeah, she's on that talking about her book and and uh, talking about her uh, grandfather. She's got a website. It's it's Major Malcolm Wheeler Nicholson dot com. So they're they're in Portland. Antoinette has married uh, Nicholson, and Malcolm is is growing up riding horses, and eventually goes to um, Manlius uh, Military Academy in New York, and then does really well with that. And then in 1912, Malcolm was commissioned as a second lieutenant in the U.S. Cavalry. After graduating from St. John's Military Academy, he moved quickly through the ranks, becoming, at 27, one of the youngest majors in the cavalry. Along the way, he saw action in Mexico, chasing Pancho Villa under General uh, Black Jack Pershing. Wow. Yeah. In, uh, in 1915, he was posted to the Philippines, commanding Troop K of the 9th Cavalry's famed African-American Buffalo Soldiers. Oh, and by wow. 1917, when most American soldiers were being sent to the uh, trenches of France, he was on a diplomatic mission as a liaison and intelligence officer to the Japanese embassy in the far reaches of Siberia. Oh, jeez. <laughs> yeah. I thought you were going to say to Alderaan. <laughs> Threw me off there. <laughs> um, <laughs> he was there to gather intelligence in the shifting alliances between the Cossacks, the Chinese, and the Japanese, and the Bolsheviks. So, kind of his military or that part of his his military career just really took him kind of all over the place. And then, in one of the 
episode, one of the podcasts I listened to talked about there being a, a, a bit of a scandal, something that happened in the Philippines with uh, with these uh, Buffalo soldiers that he was commanding. I, I wanted to find out a little bit more about that. And I found one site that said, uh, recent scholarship by military, military historians has uncovered possible motivations for his problems with his superiors, which can be traced back to his refusal to allow his superiors to harass the men of the African-American Buffalo soldiers under his command. The major was declared innocent of all charges. I'll get into what comes after this, but... Um, so it sounds to me like he stood up for his men. Um, I know he worked under this general Black Jack Pershing, who, from what I've read... Uh, was not a was not a nice guy. Um, so I, I I don't know. I, I don't want to make assumptions uh, on you know what what happened in in the military for him or what happened between him and Malcolm. So you know because I don't know. I, I would just be kind of guessing. But the major ends up writing a letter to President of the United States at the time, President Warren G. Harding. He 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 publishes the letter in the New York Times. But it's it's to the president. It's kind of an open letter to the army and to the president. And in the letter, he talks about something called uh, Prussianism, which Prussianism, which is the militarism and the severe discipline traditionally associated with the Prussians. So he calls out the his experience in the military for the, the, I think them using these Prussian tactics. Um, I think especially with the discipline, the, the severe discipline, and that I think that might be what him standing up for his his Buffalo soldiers might have something to do with that. So I don't know if they were being mistreated. I think corporal punishment was probably allowed back then, and I'm mm. sure it wasn't very nice. You know. What yeah. I mean? Yeah. Yeah. We, we we can imagine. But I think this this Prussianism uh, style is supposed to be pretty pretty severe i guess so so he's calling that out in the letter he's calling out favoritism and some some inefficiency in in some other areas so he writes this letter you know it publishes it in in the new york times and that does not go well <laughs> so <laughs> i can't imagine yeah you know, honestly, not to date this podcast, but I mean, it, this stuff even happens today. You know, people mm. get on social media calling out their superiors yeah. and it doesn't go well for them either. <laughs> yeah. The military doesn't like when you call them out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Very, very publicly. And, and yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, as far as what I was able to find out and and research, my, my timeline here in, in geography gets a little fuzzy, but I think... This takes him to Fort Dix. Um, I think there's, you know, um, they they you know bring him basically stateside and have him stationed at Fort Dix. This is again from the Major Malcolm Wheeler Nicholson dot com. It says his military career ended with a dramatic assassination attempt during a court martial under trumped up charges. Entering his darkened quarters at Fort Dix late at night, the major was fired at by a guard watching from an upstairs window. He was left bleeding on the ground for some time before help arrived, and the circumstantial evidence pointed to an assassination attempt. So, 
according to Malcolm, he says that he was arriving at the quarters like well after hours. He was going to go to the quarters of a a friend of his, like someone that he, but he, someone he knew that was away. Like, so no one should have been there and he couldn't get in the front door. So he tries the side. And when he comes in the, the guard, I guess took this to be a burglar and shoots at him says, uh, given the major's knowledge as an intelligence officer, there was obvious concerns about what might be made public. In an unlikely twist of fate, the bullet entered his temple above his ear, missing his brain. Uh, but one article I read just says that his ear his ear got shot. Like, it, it doesn't say how severe it is, but then this is talking about him actually getting shot in the head, so... Wow. Yeah. So was it an assassination attempt? Was it, you know, him coming in, uh, you know, at a in a bad way? You know, it, yeah. I I don't know. You know, it, it's certainly he he was not in good standing with the military at the time. So it's possible. Um, and I don't know what he knew. You know, if he if he was involved in in military. Uh, intelligence yeah maybe he he knew some dangerous information i don't i don't know so either way that's insane i mean yeah i mean either one like yeah mistakenly being shot or <laughs> going into your you know into into the quarters or war you know much worse more conspiracy you know like a like a larger conspiracy to, to take somebody out and that's i mean they should they they should do a movie about this guy. <laughs> we haven't even got yeah. to the part where he started, you know. I know, yeah, yeah. Started comics yet? Yeah. Uh, Malcolm's son Douglas um, gives an interview. This is from Wikipedia, but he gives an interview in Alter Ego number eighty eight from August of two thousand nine. I don't know if that's a magazine or I'm not sure what Alter Ego is, but um, Douglas says. Uh, what they did was was to set him back to what they called the 51 files, which is time and grade, the things that would let him get advancement, um, and it, in effect, ends his career. So he's still in the Army, and he still has his rank, but he would not ever be promoted, and he knew that. So this is kind of the way his career ended was just he, he wasn't court-martialed, he wasn't you know kicked out or anything, it just... They, they bring him to Fort Dix and kind of just let him know that you're not going anywhere, basically. So Yeah, it's, it's kind of like an administrative type of thing where it's like an okay. administrative punishment almost. Like you're mm. you're never going to advance and then yeah. you're just going to – you're going to wait here till your contract's up type of thing. Yeah. So he ultimately, uh, the major, resigned his commission in 1923. A few years earlier, though I will say, uh, Malcolm was in Paris and uh, he met his wife, Elsa – uh, they got married in Germany in 1920, and so between 1921 and 1932, they had five kids together: uh, Antoinette, Marianne, Malcolm, Douglas, and Diane. After he leaves the the military, he starts writing, you know, for magazines, mostly like uh, military kind of based. Uh, stories, you know, he he starts writing for the pulp magazines, 
um, adventure stories, some of them with a, a military kind of skew. And this is the time where the pulps were kind of, they're either smut magazines, basically, or they're just adventure stories, you know. And, and Malcolm, I think, entirely just wrote for the kind of adventure side of the of those magazines. So yeah, I was, I was hoping you were going to say, like, military smut. <laughs> yeah, <magazine>. yeah. <laughs> Um, so then Malcolm eventually decides to launch his own uh, comic book company uh, after he's he was you know writing for pulp magazines for a while and decides to take the he didn't invent the comic book you know that that had been going for a, a few years I think what he did that was kind of new was to create new content because everyone else was taking, the old syndicated newspaper comic strips and just putting them into books. So he forms National Allied Publications and started writing new stories with new art. And, you know, that's uh, that, in a sense, that was a new thing at the time. Entire book full of new material. Yeah, so take, taking a, a, a proving concept and, and expanding upon it. Yeah, you know? yeah. It's good. Some of the uh, first stories he wrote involved uh, uh, Lloyd Jaquette was involved with uh, editing uh, for Malcolm. You know, he hired a couple guys who, in their portfolio, uh, included a character called uh, Doctor Occult, a ghost <laughs> detective. Um, and then there was a, an Henri Duval, which was like a, a swashbuckler type story. I guess Malcolm really liked like uh, Three Musketeer type stories, you know. So he was he was writing stuff like that before. There was a like a cowboy character I think called Jack Jack Wood I think that he would uh, write stories about. So you know just just filling up these uh, comic books with you know just adventure stories and um, stuff like that and you know early occult crime kind of kind of stuff and so the first comic he puts out is called new fun and that kind of quickly becomes more fun and then ultimately becomes more fun comics so that kind of <laughs> went through a little name change but new fun eventually became more fun comics then he puts out um, later on a second magazine called new comics so <laughs> really sticking with a theme there <laughs> Uh, that new. one, yeah, uh, that one becomes New Adventure Comics, and then ultimately just Adventure Comics. And if you can picture like the cover of an Action Comics, you know, it pretty much is identical to what Adventure Comics looked like. Uh, they used the same exact Adventure Comics came first, and it used that same font, that same layout. So if you can picture Action Comics, that kind of cover. That's what adventure comics look like, just um, just a different word. Um, around this time, it's 1936, and a man named uh, Jack Leibovitz and Harry Donenfeld decide to get into the comics game. Their, uh, their previous business included printing. Um, Harry Donenfeld had... Uh, there was uh, someone in his, his family owned a printing company, and he tried to set out and do his own thing, but ultimately kind of fell back into the family business of printing. But it kind of worked out for, for Harry because he was importing the pulp 
I, I don't know if he was importing the trees or the wood or, you know, the pulp, like the, the processed wood, um, but he was getting this stuff imported from Canada, uh, the pulp that goes into making the actual, you know, pages for these, uh, these comics, which is why they're called pulps. Um, but along with the uh, the timber, the wood, the pulp, whatever they're they're importing, do you know what else they might have been uh, bringing into the country? Alcohol. Bingo. <laughs> yep. So Harry Donenfeld and I, I, I assume Jack Leibovitz. I think they were partners at this time. But Harry Donenfeld certainly was a, was a, a smuggler. He was a booze runner. You know, this was Prohibition time. So you gotta you gotta assume that he's probably selling it to the the mob. You know he's probably doing business with gangsters. You know because I think they're kind of the ones running the the booze into the the nightclubs and the you know, wherever it's getting sold. So I think when prohibition ends and they're still you know they're printing their smut magazines. You know kind of just puddling their their dirty magazines and then that stuff starts to come under fire because like the the vice squads will come after the newsstands that are selling this stuff because it's you know considered indecent or whatever and sometimes that goes up the chain and they'll come after the the printing companies that are printing it so i think it's just enough hassle that they're kind of looking for a way out of out of that and maybe to legitimize a little bit because there can be you know some serious money in, in in that so they start seeing these comics going out and of course they're printing them and they're actually printing uh, the majors comics at this time and they see this as an opportunity because comics are starting to outsell the pulps you know the pulp magazines are starting to to wane in in you know popularity and and in favor of comics so they see it as an opportunity and um they Go talk to the major who the major is ready to launch a third title. Uh, it's going to be called Detective Comics. But at this time, like the major is kind of out of money. So uh, Jack and Harry come up to him with an offer. They'll team up with with uh, the major and to, so that uh, Malcolm can put out Detective Comics. But with that, like Jack will become a business partner. They're gonna um, partner up and and they call this new company uh, Detective Comics Incorporated. From wikiwan.com, it says in early 1938, Harry Donenfeld sends Malcolm and his wife on a cruise to Cuba to quote work up new ideas. When they come home, the major found the lock to his office door changed. In his absence, Harry had sued him for non-payment and pushed Detective Comics. Inc. into bankruptcy court. There, a judge named Abe Menon, one of Harry's old uh, Tammany buddies, and I think Tammany is like a, I think it said like a secret, not a secret society, but like a, a society, you know, a, a, a group. One of his old buddies had been appointed interim president of the firm and arranged a quick sale of the assets to Independent News, which is uh, Harry and Jack's printing hmm. uh, firm. Harry gave the gave the major a percentage of more fun comics as a shut up token and wished him well. So that's kind of how National Allied and Detective Comics gets gets taken from uh, the major. Yeah, 
I had a feeling once you started talking about bootleggers and going into <laughs> partnership, I'm like, yeah, this is not going to end well. <laughs> and and they pulled this same stunt on someone else a couple years later. I, I feel like they get, uh, what's it called, All Star Comics, the same kind of way. Um, and All Star, when they did that with All Star, that gave them Wonder Woman, Green Lantern, Green Arrow, you know, characters like that. Oh wow! So, um, yeah, I think they they pulled a similar stunt with uh, that was Max Gaines who owned that company. He would later on form EC Comics. Yeah, I was say that name sounded really familiar as soon as yeah. you said that. I think it was a documentary by I don't know if it was the PBS one or the History Channel one. It was like the History of Comics. Uh, I just remember Keith David narrated it, and I okay. and I think they they get into a little bit about. Um, how DC Comics was basically, they they mentioned briefly uh, Major Malcolm Wheeler and and mm. um, I had a feeling <laughs> that you know it was starting to sound familiar. To, I'm like, I, I yeah, if I recall, you know, he got swindled and they they basically yeah. stole it from him. Pretty much, yeah. So yeah, so Jack and Harry they take National Allied Publications, they merge it with Detective Comics Incorporated. And then start putting out books just under the name National Comics, and then like Detective Detective Comics is now you know it's out it's 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 publishing, and they're putting out some books. Eventually, of course, by issue twenty seven, then you know Batman is introduced. Malcolm's long gone uh, by that time, but uh, yeah. Um. So the the writer artist combo that I talked about earlier who, you know, provided uh, the uh, Dr. Occult and the Henri Duvall stories. Uh, that was two kids from Cleveland by the names of Jerome Siegel and Jerry Schuster. So hmm. they... Two names we've never heard of and we'll never, never hear Yeah, they, 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 they go they, on. Yeah, they went on to do nothing. We <laughs> Exactly. Uh, but no, yeah, he, he gave them their first, you know... Kind of a start, according to Nikki, um, Nikki Wheeler Nicholson. Like they worked um, at least four months out on a book. Like when they would produce a book, you know, you're kind of working four months ahead of the game, right? So if you publish a book in April, if it hits the it's the stands in April, then that really goes back to like January or December, hmm. and so. Superman is published in Action Comics number one in April of 1938. So if you go back four months, you're in January. Malcolm was still in charge of of the company at that point. Listening to to Nikki and, and some of the the stuff I I listened to her talk about, like the major was working with Jerry and Joe on Superman. Like he was giving them some ideas, maybe a few tweaks to the characters. He was really excited about the character, um, was involved in the creation of, of Superman. I mean, it, it's their care. It's, it's Joe and, uh, Jerry's character, but he was, you know, working on it with them. And, you know, by the time it, it, between, uh, the time when they take this cruise and, and, you know, all that. And at the time that it comes out in April, it's, you know, he's he's out of the picture and oh. you know he's he's not associated you know you know you, you don't hear uh the major 
uh, being associated with Superman at this point because Superman hits the newsstands, it changes the world. It's you know action comics. It's it, it's yeah. part of it's part of uh, Harry and uh, Jack's you know company. So right. Well, I'm glad there's somebody like Nikki that was able to go out and do the research and, yeah. and get the story out there because I mean that kind of like what we you know what I was saying at the beginning. It's it's like it, it seems like major 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 Malcolm Wheeler. And Lloyd Jacquet both had a hand in creating the two biggest comic book companies. Mm-hmm. And there's without Superman, there's no DC. You know, there's really no oh, yeah. uh, DC comics. Um, I mean, yeah, they did their, you know, he started out as new fun, more fun, all that good stuff. And, you know, they had their pulps and all that. But once, you know, once, you know, comics, the way we know it really kicks off, I think, with Superman. And, and it's never really been the same. It's interesting to know that, yes, he didn't create them per se. <laughs> uh, you know, we we know who created them. It's the fact that somebody had to give those two their their start. And yeah, and, and like you said, and and also, it makes sense as a publisher would offer notes, ideas, yeah, yeah. you know, ed- editorial, you know, stuff like that. So it's I'm I'm glad to hear that. And it, it's and again, without him, there's no DC Comics then, <laughs> for sure. You know, so yeah. That's uh, that's that. I'm I'm glad that hasn't been lost to time. Um, <laughs> but that's fascinating. <laughs> yeah, it really is. Um, of course, I mean, after this, you know, he he, you know, the major, it, it says uh, he gave up on the world of of commerce thereafter, and he went back to writing war stories and uh, critiques of the American military, and you know, then just some political articles and things like that. So he he ke- he kept writing. But I think he was done with, uh, you know, comics and, and that kind of industry. And yeah. then, uh, but he, he, you know, he lived till uh, 1965. He, he did die of a, a major heart attack at the uh, age of 75. From what I read, you know, he was read and, and heard and listened to. He was a very uh, a nice guy, but just not a great businessman, maybe. And, uh, you know, and one interesting thing that I, I heard Nikki say and I thought was really interesting was that DC Comics wouldn't be what it is today if it had stayed in her family. You know, they probably couldn't have done the things that, you know, Jack and, and Harry ended up doing and the people came after them. Like, you know, there may not be a it, may, it wouldn't be what it is today. Yeah, I, I totally get that. Like you said, there's there's plenty of creative people that don't have the business. Um, it sounds like these, you know, he probably didn't have the cutthroatness. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think yeah. that's a big part of it. Right, it, which is ironic considering he's, you know, it sounded like he was pretty pretty badass military guy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, and but um, yeah, yeah, you know, business world's different. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, um, that's really all I have on on Major Malcolm Wheeler Nicholson, but. Uh, I'd I'd be curious to read uh, Nikki's book on on Malcolm because I, I'd like to find out what because I know there's more to his military career that I think is mm-hmm. probably in the book and and the uh, the way everything played out between basically the company being stolen from yeah. from Malcolm so yeah I mean I, I mentioned earlier about it, it you know his life making a movie but you really could make two separate movies and and not even reference the other like you could do a <laughs> like a a crime not like a crime but like a like a drama 
about him losing the company, you know. Mm. And, but also you could do <laughs> like either a military, like a military, almost like a, a few good men type movie where mm. it's like, you know, the courtroom stuff and the yeah. the intrigue well, yeah, and the it, assassination. Yeah. yeah, it's just insane. Mm. Um, and and they, they, they can be two totally separate things. <laughs> <laughs> um, there's enough, enough story in there. Yeah, uh, to do it, and uh, I, I'd be curious a little bit. I mean, his from just the highlights that you you mentioned, um, you know, being with Buffalo Soldiers, and yeah. even the stuff with going over in you know, Jason Pachovia, <laughs> like that's pretty 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 mm-hmm. amazing. And and uh, you know, uh, just even being a like like a liaison with China in you know Siberia. Or did you say is that where he says Siberia or um, Alaska? Yeah, he was in Siberia. Let me yeah. find it. He was... Oh, here we go. Um, he was on a diplomatic mission as a liaison and intelligence officer to the Japanese embassy in okay. the far reaches of Siberia uh, to gather intelligence in the shifting alliances between the Cossacks, the Chinese, the Japanese, and the Bolsheviks. Wow. So there's... Yeah, that's yeah, so even that, like, yeah, yeah, now that, you know, that's... That's more of like a spy thriller if you could do that yeah. portion of it. But geez, that I mean, that just sounds fascinating. And then you know, and then this guy went on to do funny books. You know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, that, that's great. Well, actually, one one more thing. Um, I think you mentioned this to me offline, and I didn't know this, but uh, oh, his, yeah. His, well, go ahead. What were you gonna say? No, I, yeah, you reminded me of what I, I think. It was. Okay, go. Then you no, go. go. <laughs> okay. Um, one of one of Malcolm's granddaughters is Dana Wheeler Nicholson, who um, is in... She's in Fletch. She's the, like, love interest in Fletch. Um, she's I saw she's in, like, some Sex in the City episodes. Um, uh, I mean, it was, you know, several let's, things. Uh, yeah, let, let's it's, not also forget the uh, one of the best movies ever created, yeah, Tombstone. Oh, yeah, the, yep, Tombstone, uh, Sex in the City... Uh, Friday Night Lights, Law and Order, Criminal Intent, uh, the soap opera All My Children. So, and she's this uh, daughter of Douglas. So, okay. And then I don't know. I think um, Nikki, the the one, the writer of, of the book. I don't know if they're sisters, and she's also a daughter of Douglas, or um, she might be the daughter of of Malcolm. You know. I don't know okay. if it's Malcolm, Malcolm the second or I'm not sure, but she did say it was her father's side. So it's either Douglas or Malcolm is her father. And then. So they're either sisters or cousins. Yeah. I got yeah. You. When you mentioned that to me, I was like, man, she's in, I mean, not only is major Malcolm Wheeler, you know, uh, responsible for par- partially responsible for one of my all time favorite superheroes ever, Superman, <laughs> but <laughs> His granddaughter is in two of my favorite movies, which is Fletch and Tombstone. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I used to line all the time, uh, may I borrow your towel? I hit a water buffalo outside. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that was obviously from Tombstone. No. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, um, uh, do you have anything else about Malcolm? No, or no, no. I'm, jump I'm, into one? I'm, all, I'm all done. Go for it. Excellent. Okay, well. I actually, uh, you know, I, I took the easy route, and I'm, I'm going to talk about somebody we've already uh, referred to, but also somebody who worked for uh, Major Malcolm Wheeler, and that's uh, Lloyd Jaquette. Now, um, I think we discussed Lloyd mostly, you know, with the Marvel comics, but also came up um, in the, um, or he, he will come up, or uh, has come up 
I forget when all this is. <laughs> um, <laughs> Joe Simon mentions them, and mm. uh, actually, I don't think that episode's out yet. But right. one of the things that Joe Simon mentions in his book is that Lloyd Jaquette was called the Colonel. Oh, that's right. And this is out. Yeah, and this is where it got me thinking of like, hey, you know, we got Major Malcolm Wheeler, and then we got the Colonel Lloyd Jaquette. All right, let's talk about these guys in Veterans Day, right? Yeah. Because at the time when we were doing uh, Marvel Comics number one and getting into uh, Funny Zinc and all that, I, I didn't realize that he was a military guy. Mm. I just thought he was a business guy. Sure. Um, so since it wasn't really, you know, the episode's not out yet, I'll just I kind of recap a little bit that Joe Simon mentioned he looked like, uh, that Lloyd Jaquette looked like a dead ringer for Douglas MacArthur, corncob pipe and everything. <laughs> And that he also, and you know, I've seen his picture, he kind of does look like him. I mean, I can see it. But um, he also had his, his office was painted Battleship Gray. And uh, his, his furnishings were very sparse, like a military guy, you know. Everything was neat and polished. But again, you know, so I kept, I kept seeing references. There's very little information about his actual military service. Mm. But I kept re- referencing that he was a World War One colonel. And that's a, that was his nickname, according to Joe. Everybody called him the colonel. Yeah. Well... I don't think he was actually a colonel. <laughs> <laughs> oh, really? Yeah. I mean, this is what's unf- you know, unfortunate about some of these, um, you know, going back is, y- you know, you do, you can only, there's only so much, you know, you can find it. They, they, they just keep repeating itself, you know? Like, yeah. It's, yeah. it's, well, yeah, I went to this website, but it's just parodying something that another website already said. So I'm like, well, that's not very helpful. Mm-hmm. Um, and, 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 you know, obviously, when they kind of talk about Lloyd, a lot of it is, uh, it's in reference to creating, you know, Funny Zinc or, or Centaur Publishing because, um, you know, he started out there, you know, we, we've talked about that. But, yeah, it says, at, you know, like right on Wikipedia, um, after serving as a colonel in World War I, uh, he went on to uh, work as an editor for Major Malcolm Wheeler's National Allied magazines the future yeah. of dc comics so i was like oh great you know so now we got a connection between these two guys and and i was just like but i don't think that actually happened <laughs> so yeah uh, the one the one thing i found was a uh, a website called pulpartists.com hmm. and they have a fairly good biography about lloyd jacquette um uh, like a nice little timeline so a lot of the information that i'm, I'm going to talk about came directly from there because um, I, I couldn't find much else besides what we already kind of discussed mm-hmm. on our previous episode and the little tidbits that we got from Joe Simon. That's, you know, that's, that's a teaser for an episode to come. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, you know, Lloyd, uh, Lloyd was born, he, Lloyd Victor Francis Jaquette. And actually I think, I think I was a little, I'm like, is it, he's, his parents are both French. Yeah. So both his parents are French. Okay. His father came to America in 1889. His mother came in 1886. Okay. And they met in uh, 1897. They married in 1897. So uh, basically, they lived in Brooklyn. Um, gotcha. And, they, um, and he had he had a sister Georgette. But uh, um, you know, given that they were French, I was kind of yeah. I've been calling him Jacquet, and I was like, oh, am I saying this wrong? Is it like Jacques? <laughs> you know, or something? Yeah. Well, one of the, I mean, I went to Google and like said, how do you say this? <laughs> and Jaquette <laughs> was one of the pronunciations. So I'm going to just stick with it because that's what we've been going yeah. with. <laughs> Close enough. Mm-hmm. It doesn't say much about his childhood other than he, he went to a uh, manual, uh, it was called a manual training high school in Brooklyn in, in 1914. 
and there he he got um, into amateur radio. And this is one thing I didn't know at the time is he was heavily involved with amateur radio stuff. And, and okay, um, that was that seemed to be what he did before. Um, well, he gets on to doing other stuff, but but all all related to this you know kind of radio stuff uh, prior to getting into comics. So yeah, he um he joined the amateur radio club. He started, it was he formed a Brooklyn wide affiliation of radio clubs, <laughs> and he also joined something called the Wireless Association of America. So kind of like this like ham radio type stuff. And and, and you got to imagine at the time that is probably seems. I mean that's it's the podcasting of its day. It's the probably the most technological hobby anyone could have. Oh you yeah, know, you got to figure it's, it's like, yeah, like when when people were like got on computers, you know, when it was yeah, new, yeah, yeah. It, all that, yeah, c- cutting edge, I'm sure at the time. So that's a pretty cool like hobby that he gets into as a young person, and yeah, and I was wondering like a manual training, like that's what it's called, manual training high school. I wonder if it was more like mm. you know technological or uh, blue collar kind of probably probably more like a vocational kind of school. Right, thank you. That's what I was thinking of, and not not more of a liberal arts type <laughs> school, right, but yeah, more. Yeah. But yeah, so it makes sense that they would maybe have something like that there, sure, and, and, and nurture that. So when he was a, a junior in in uh, high school, he wrote editorial letters about the hobby, you know, the radio hobby, radio hobby, radio hobby uh, for the juvenile section of the local newspaper, the Brooklyn Daily Eagle. So even at a young age, now he's you know he's he's writing a. a a spot for the local paper. Uh, you can see the the seeds of uh, of publishing, <laughs> you know, right there. Yeah. So in 1918 is when he completed high school and he was drafted by the U.S. Navy. So this says, you know, drafted by the U.S. Navy during the Great War. And he served as a, take one guess, radio operator. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, so he already knew radio. So he was a radio operator. Um, you know, he was a seaman second class on the USS Bridge, a Navy supply ship is what it said. And other than that, it, I mean, it, it didn't really have a lot of information. Uh, the hmm. So I, I did try to find out some information about, you know, the USS Bridge itself. It was named after, uh, in honor of Commodore Horatio Bridge. Uh, that's where the namesake mm. bridge came from. But uh, during the 1917-1918, uh, the ship made four round trips across the Atlantic as a unit of the Naval Overseas Transportation Service. I'm not really sure what that is. Sounds like it's a, it's a freight liner, essentially. Yeah. It's the running, running goods and, and equipment and... Makes sense considering it's a supply ship. And yeah. what I did learn about after the war, the ship did go into commercial use for a while. Mm. So I, which I was surprised about because I guess the Navy was must have sold it off or whatever for, yeah. <laughs> instead of scrapping it. But um, said in July 1918, while in New York City, Bridge was assigned to the train. Uh, and it just stated that basically it was the United States Atlantic Fleet that operated between New York, uh, York, uh, the York River in Virginia and the Chesa- Chesapeake Bay. And I feel that's about the time when he probably would have been on. So yeah. I don't know if he was making the trips across the Atlantic. He was probably doing that train run between the, the three areas there. It did state that he came back in June of 1918 to his uh, high school. Uh, the actual local newspaper um, reported on it that he came back to manual training high school. 
uh, dressed in, he made a surprise appearance, dressed in his full uniform to receive uh, his, the first diploma of his entire class and everybody cheered <laughs> and he was, yeah, they were, he was giving, he was given an emergency shore leave, which <laughs> at the time I was thinking, but Jesus, World War II or World War One. I'm surprised <laughs> yeah. he didn't go back to graduate. But given that he was probably running between New York City and this Brooklyn, oh, they probably yeah. let him off ship for a day, and he was probably just showed up in uniform, and there we go. Sure. <laughs> they said he, he kind of gave a, a commencement speech, basically, you know, except an impromptu speech, and it kind of set off, like, it was a, like a, a formative-type experience for him because he was talking about um, becoming a public spokesman, basically, mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> right then and there. Um, so in 19... 19- it says August of 1919, he was honorably discharged from the military, and he returned to New York City, back to Brooklyn. And he just went to um, Polytechnic Institute of Brooklyn for advanced study of electronics and radio craft. So again, mm. sticking with the radio. Yeah. <laughs> uh, which is great. Um, maybe he's thinking about a career in, in broadcasting, maybe. I don't know. Or maybe yeah. just, just the hands-on technical side of radio repair or... Yeah, well, you're not you're not wrong. <laughs> so in 1921, he completed sophomore year at college, and then he entered the workforce, is what he said, um, or what this this article says. And he was hired by the editorial staff of the Brooklyn Daily Eagle, the, you know, the local paper he had already been oh, yeah. kind of yeah doing stuff for and covered. And um, he was he was hired for his expertise in wireless operation and as a veteran of the Great War. <laughs> so already putting his military experience to good use, <laughs> and. Again, now he's already you now he's getting involved with uh, newspaper publication, which this also seems to be a theme that we keep coming across <laughs> with yeah. uh, you know these guys at the time. So yeah, he he uh, he was writing in 1922. It says he wrote for a radio review editorials for the New York Evening Mail. He was also the editor of the Amateur Radio Magazine. <laughs> Basically, it they said that solidified his reputation as a leading proponent of the ham radio community. <laughs> so, again, a lot of this, I mean, he's doing a lot of, like, newspaper stuff, but it's all centered around uh, amateur radio and or wireless technology. So, it's you know, definitely found a niche for himself. Yeah. Sounds like he's doing what he loves. Yeah. And it jumps around, and, you know, there's not a lot of detail, but it did say in 1925 the New York Times reported that Lloyd Jaquette, uh, the American representative at the Paris International Amateur Radio Convention, had cabled receipt of an experimental transatlantic radio broadcast from WAHG of Richmond Hill, Long Island, New York, and said the scientific milestone was heralded in newspapers around the world. In the response to the publicity, he was promoted to the editor of the Broken Eagle Weekly Radio page, and uh, his column was then syndicated by, by McClure uh, Newspaper Syndicate. So definitely, again, making a name for himself. And, yeah. <laughs> And getting published more and more now. Let's see. So, and, but also in 1925, he was married to Mary Grace Mullane. She was from New York City as well, with an uh, Irish lady from, from also from, uh, well, I guess they moved to the Bronx, actually. <laughs> but said they had no children. I don't know if that changes, but there it just said no children. <laughs> but then he started uh, writing a monthly column called Listening In for Popular Radio. A monthly column. So he also hosted the WABC radio pro- program Going to the Press. Uh, that was the following year in 1927. And in 1928, he hosted a regular radio show also for WABC. You know, basically radio show of songs and was the guest announcer on several 
uh, WMBC radio show. So I basically fill in is kind of the way I took it. Uh, so, you know, he there were some issues with uh, some of the radio stations going bankrupt. So he had to find <laughs> other work. Yeah. <laughs> um, and what, so he ended up. Oh, go ahead. Did you say what year this was? Well, in 1929. So you can, oh. yeah, you can kind of figure what maybe happened in 1929. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's what Things I was took a turn. Yep. <laughs> yeah, I was talking about, you know, McClure kind of having some financial trouble and all that good stuff. So uh, 1930, uh, Lloyd Jaquette was the editor of the weekly radio column of the New York Herald Tribune. And then it said he was also a member of the executive board of Newspaper Radio Editors Association. Uh, yeah, so, I mean, he just he's really just involved <laughs> yeah. with, with that. They had clubs for everything back then. Yeah, no kidding, no kidding. This is now 1931, you know, so we're entering the 30s, getting closer to comic book time. And he's he's writing feature articles in Radio Digest. It was produced by uh, McFadden's uh, um, tech publications. So he's working for some, you know, pretty big publishers, I guess, at this point. Mm. In 1934, New York, the New York Herald Tribune stopped printing uh, their amateur radio column. That At that time, Lloyd Jaquette served as the newspaper's science editor. So... They kept them around, just moved them. You know, science, technology, it's all pretty good. (laughs) (laughs) So, uh, you know, like I said, it's not a a lot about his uh, initial military stuff, and now Mm -hmm. we're getting closer to 1935. The Brooklyn Eagle reported that the former radio editor, Lloyd Jaquette, was going to be the editor of something called New Fun Magazine Ah. for juveniles. Yeah. So, and actually, okay, so it talks about, um, and I I have a, I saw it, I saw a picture of it. It was like a handwritten letter that he wrote that was printed in 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 the in the newspaper and it's it seemed like the newspaper is kind of somehow associated with it and it says uh new fun hot off the daily ego press uh goes on sale today from coast to coast take this copy home try it on the youngsters from two to 90 (laughs) uh and see them go through this um I think it says, I can't, actually, it's, you know, I can't read it. <laughs> so it's like live modern idea of a kid's magazine filled with original, underlined, <laughs> yeah. again, original comics and features. And then uh, and it says, you know, from Lloyd Jaquette, editor. P.S. How do you like it? <laughs> and, you know, and it goes on to kind of say this article since, well, uh, it was kind of published in association with the Daily Eagle there. So okay. that's why they... They printed it and all that, and and again, so now we're, you know, we're getting into what you discussed with about Major Malcolm Wheeler, and I said, yeah, and he, and then he even goes into talk a little bit about Major Malcolm Wheeler, very high level, goes over some of the stuff you talked about with. Sure, he was an outspoken critic of the War Department. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. doesn't get into that he chased Pancho Villa or anything yeah, like yeah. that, but uh, yeah, so it's it's you know, it just it just kind of discusses how they kind of got you know where he got his start a little bit. Okay. And it said, but but the big thing about um, it says the first issue of New Fun is dated is February 1935, and that the title New Fun and I thought found this interesting is it's basically a reference to the long running British humor magazine Fun. Mm. So they were just like you know, well New you know, York New York yeah. that's fun New Fun, <laughs> <laughs> um, and then and then of course it mentions it it mentions more fun as well. <laughs> yeah. So. Um, <laughs> And then it kind of gets into how you start to get the name National Ally and all that good stuff. <laughs> and then, you know, and kind of from there, one thing I I noticed, it, it, it didn't, 
it didn't really get much into what we talked about him him working for uh, Centaur Publications prior to coming over to Funny Zinc. Sure. Uh, so it really doesn't say when he 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 did that. You know, because it's hmm. all 1935, and you know, just talking about this. But I, I think it was um, when do we say that? Well, kind of mentions 1936. Well, I, I've seen a couple of different things, and I can't, I can't yeah. remember what we said, but I think it was 1938 when they said they established Funnies in, in, uh, yeah. Funnies Incorporated. And I think it was 1939, though, when we you know, when we get into Marvel Comics, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because it, it, it even calls out the actually that he was had a hand in producing the Motion Pictures Funnies Weekly. Okay. The... <laughs> Never seen, yeah. uh, what like six issues printed, uh, <laughs> six copies <laughs> printed uh, that that debuted uh, Namor the Submariner. Right, that was meant to be a, a giveaway um, that that didn't happen, and so it ended up getting in uh, into Marvel Comics number one. So it calls out that he, you know, he had a hand in that. Well, I went back and found more information. It talked about how he. You know, was the editor of Centaur Publications. He produced Amazing Man comics. This is all stuff we discussed in in, in Marvel Comics number one. Sure. About bringing all these guys over, Bill Everett, Carl Bogros, all that. Right. What kind of jumped out to me that I was not aware of is in 1943 during World War II, he got called back into the Navy. Okay. <laughs> so he's a two-time veteran. Said uh, he served as a lieutenant in the U.S. Naval Reserves aboard the USS Hermitage. His duties brought his ship throughout the treacherous oceans of war-torn world. Uh, and it said in 1946, he was uh, honorably discharged. So, huh. And he went in, uh, he said 1943? Yeah, 1943, so three years okay. ago, World War II. He was, he was aboard the um, USS Hermitage. And How old is he then? Well, um, what was let's he, see. He was 80, he was born, born in... 1899. I don't know if okay. I actually okay. said that. So he was like 44? <laughs> I meant to. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So he would have been 44 years old. Wow. You know, honestly, back then, that's not unheard of for World War yeah. II. Sure. Yeah. I mean, if he if he, he was an able-bodied male and yeah. he yeah. already had naval experience, he has radio experience, and now he's a business guy that's kind of yeah. commanding, you know, leading people, yeah, they'd found a use for him. Yeah, <laughs> that, that's for sure. I wish there was more information about his actual military service, but yeah. um, I found that fascinating, though, that he <laughs> he went back into the military. And again, nowhere does a colonel uh, yeah. uh, show up in the Navy. <laughs> so <laughs> I don't know why they call him the colonel. <laughs> and so I guess after this military stint, does he go back to comics? And is that when Joe Simon starts comparing him to um, Patton? Or not Patton. I, uh, well, to uh, um, uh, Douglas MacArthur. M- MacArthur, yeah. Yeah, I, I would have to admit, yeah, that's, that's funny because um, I would think MacArthur was mostly famous from from World War Two, <laughs> yeah. So I don't know if, if Simon yeah, would have known who he right, was yeah. then, but he, yeah. I think hmm. I, it must have been, yeah, from that because it said it said during the war it, it was likely that his wife uh, Mary Grace uh, oversaw continued production of of the shop. Huh. So it, I mean, it, it, it even That's specify cool. for sure. But yeah, in 1946, it said they, you know, he continued to produce uh, material for a patriotic comic book, Your United States. And in 1947, his shop produced materials for the Catholic publication Treasure Chest. And then he, it really kind of gets vague as to what he did 
you know, post the war, yeah. World War II, because it just mentions that, you know, he, he edited the alumni roster for the Polytechnic Institute of Brooklyn. Mm. And, you know, basically he, uh, he presented a bound copy to the college president on the 25th anniversary of the Alumni Association, which, of course, that was the college he went to. Yeah. But, I mean, that's just more work that he did. And then he's something about the New York Times in 1956 uh, during the 20th annual meeting of the Jules Verne Society of New York City which only four members still belonged. <laughs> um, you know, I said, Lloyd Jaquette, a gentleman who deals in comic books is what it was listed as. <laughs> so he, I mean, he, he was still, I forgot, I think we, I can't remember if we mentioned what he was doing afterwards, if he was still kind of doing some uh, government comic book, like I said, like patriotic mm-hmm. comic books. But Maybe, I don't, I don't remember, I don't remember him specifically coming back up yeah, um, I think it was just much. he's for our purposes. He, yeah, he's the guy that started Funny Zinc, right? And then and then everybody kind of broke off on their own. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> you know from there. So, um, you know, he died uh, at the age of seventy in in in, um, in nineteen seventy, the March mm. of nineteen seventy. Yeah. So, w- the one thing that kind of stood out to me though was the fact that he worked for Major Malcolm Wheeler and was the editor of New Fun Comics, which. We've, as we discussed, you know, especially on your portion of it, you know, that was the precursor to DC Comics. And then, as we've already talked about together on our uh, show proper, Marvel Comics number one, he was the guy that started Funny Zinc, which, you know, produced Marvel Comics number one, which was the birth of of Marvel Comics. Former DC comic publisher Paul Leibowitz, he was quoted as basically saying, like, you know, everybody talks about Major Malcolm Wheeler kind of getting, you know, giving him a little credit for, you know, the credit for starting DC, but they were saying that, you know, this is the man who basically helped start both Marvel and DC. Mm. More or less kind of, you know, he's saying from his point of view, you know, he deserves a lot of credit, you know, basically. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, because he, he, it's like, he, it's like the Cain and Abel, basically, of, (laughs) yeah. well, it said because, you know, Cain and Abel, basically, um, you know, Marvel and DC, but it's just... (laughs) He's responsible for for both in in a way, you know, or at least at least had a hand in it. Sure, and because Joe Simon was a, a Lloyd Jaquette guy, wasn't he? Yeah. yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, he was he was another. So, so yeah, it, it's just it's just funny that you know without these two men that we've talked about, we don't have the 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 comic book industry. I mean, obviously, so many other people had a hand in it, and as you stated, if Malcolm Wheeler kept it it may not have blossomed as, as to what it becomes Same, honestly same with lloyd jaquette i mean if he didn't sure. if he if he just tried as funny zinc tried to publish it himself let's say it may, it may not have spun off into what martin goodman did with marvel yeah um certainly comics were going to happen you know i mean uh-huh. like i said malcolm was one of the first to take new material but that would have happened you know i i think it may have been a couple months down the line after him. It may have been, you know, I do believe like he he was on to something, but it wasn't groundbreaking. You know, it wasn't right. such a new concept that it just hadn't been done yet, I think. I'm not trying to take anything away from him. <laughs> you know, he got there first. Right. Credit where credit is due, but you're sure. right. It, it would have happened eventually, but... yeah. But these guys, you know, he, he specifically did it, you know, and, yeah. and he brought he brought um, uh, Lloyd Jaquette along with him as, as yeah. the editor. So, yeah, and I think guys. a lot of these guys, these creators, I do think like someone would have 
produced something like a Superman if if you know Siegel and Schuster hadn't gotten there uh, if 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 Malcolm hadn't like seen their work and given given them work you know because these guys had were were shopping Superman around town you know for I think uh, a couple years and it was that plus the the other stuff that that got got them into you know I guess into into working with uh, Wheeler and um, Wheeler Nicholson and I don't know where I'm going with that, but I like <laughs> it's it's interesting. Like someone would have created the 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 next big thing. It would just it would just make everything you know so much different nowadays. But it is interesting. Yeah, I mean, it, like you said, it, it, they they did something. You know, I think you did say it. Like other people were producing comics. Somebody would have come up with that idea to do to do new. It's just that these guys did it. They don't always get the full credit because it's you know it's yeah. not it's not known as I you know you ask your average person they may not know who uh, Lloyd Jaquette or honestly I don't think I ever knew heard Lloyd Jaquette's name until we started this show. No, I hadn't heard of, hadn't heard of either of these guys. You know. Oh, see, I have heard of Major Malcolm Wheeler, and I think yeah. again though I think he was referenced in some of those uh some of these like documentaries and sometimes sure. they're on like Amazon or Netflix if you can mm-hmm. find them they're well worth um watching uh but again it's always just kind of glossed over cuz you want to get to the good yeah. stuff you want to get the superman you want to get the batman you want to get the marvel right yeah so it's just kind of like eh. and you know i given that we're you know we're going through the timeline given that we're in the 30s and and we're we're talking about the birth of marvel it made sense to kind of go, hey, you know, this Veterans Day, let's look at a veteran, in this case two, that had a hand in creating what we kind of, you know, we wouldn't be doing this podcast if these guys yeah. didn't take the time <laughs> to, uh, you know, to, to try and make their fortune on on comics. And, and it's just, um, it, it's, I sometimes forget that some of these people, you know, served in the military prior to starting their their life in business or their life in entertainment so and and you know i think i think eventually just just because of the way our show is is structured we will we'll probably end up talking about more veterans in in a non-bonus episode you know just in a regular timeline just because well we've got you know joe simon jack kirby stan lee you know those guys all served and we're going to talk about their kind of their lives and and that sort of thing. We're going to do an episode, uh, you know, a little bit down the road, you know, with Captain America and, and basically the U.S. entering World War II and, and kind of all that. So it's basically unavoidable because it was such a big yeah. impact, both both on the stories, but also the production. For sure. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. Uh, but but, you know, in the meantime, there's a little Veterans Day episode. Happy Veterans Day to, to all our veterans out there. You know, thank everybody for their service. Yep. Thank you for your service, Brian. Oh, well, thank you. Thank you so much. I never know how to respond to that. So I'm sure. I, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I always just say thank you. <laughs> or I try to make some smart Alec remark like, you're welcome for my service. <laughs> it doesn't always play. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, thank you. And, um, and yeah, Travis, I appreciate uh, you taking the time to research Malcolm Wheeler and explain it to me. And Yeah, I'm glad you brought it to me, you know. Because it, it may have been a name that I had seen or heard, but didn't pay attention to because it wasn't Stan Lee, you know? Yeah. <laughs> I, I was in the camp of basically of, yeah, 
DC Comics started with Superman, you know. But right. it's what I've learned is it goes a little bit, you know, a couple years prior and. Well, you know, hopefully the time variant of Thorry doesn't come and try to prune us uh, because right. we went a DC already on our show and not. Uh... <laughs> it's okay. It's a special episode. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, again, uh, we'll just thank everybody for listening to us. Um, uh, I think Travis, you'll put all the uh, all our contact information in the in the show notes if yep. anybody wants to reach out to us and listen to our proper our show proper and. Uh, Again, thanks for joining us, and thanks for uh, have a happy val- uh, Valentine's Day. <laughs> There's a blooper. Uh, <laughs> happy Veterans Day. <laughs> happy Veterans Day. Come back next time for the continuing journey with Travis and Brian. Until then, join the conversation over at facebook.com slash groups slash Marvel Events Timeline. On Twitter and Instagram at Marvel Events Pod, or email the show at marveleventspod at gmail.com. Valentine's Day, Jesus. <laughs>